think of the person you look up to most in the world. Maybe it's a politician or a celebrity or a religious leader or even a family member. Whoever it is, you're probably not thinking of a magician. But in the tiny Indonesian village of Aman Damai, one of the most respected figures was a man who reportedly controlled the weather and healed the sick through magic. Anyone who had a problem, they came to him for help in the dead of night and never spoke of it in the morning. However, that shaman's power and mystery came at a price. He believed he had to keep his abilities strong by performing ritual murder. This is the story of Ahmad Siraji, the Black Magic Killer. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm taking you on a world tour of 15 notorious crimes from 15 different countries. This week, we're visiting Indonesia for a story that combines magic, mysticism, and murder. Ahmad Siraji was a serial killer and a sorcerer whose alleged abilities were almost as controversial as his homicides. In fact, his work as a shaman was so unspeakably taboo, nobody even bothered to investigate his murders for 11 years. I have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played Agents Tony Dinozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof. It's April 24th, 1997. And this 15-year-old rickshaw driver named Andreas Suido is working. Andreas lives in this tiny village called Aman de Mai, which translates to peace and tranquility. That name is really appropriate. This is the sort of quiet town where everybody knows everyone else, which means business can be super slow for Andreas. But he's in luck. This woman he knows named Sheree Kamala Dewi comes up and asks for a ride. Naturally, Andreas asks her what her destination is. But Dewi refuses to tell him. All she'll say is you'll know later. Now, this has to be setting off alarm bells for Andreas. 
but he lets her get in and Dewi tells him what general direction he should head in. They're on the road for a while before Dewi finally tells Andreas her destination. She says she's going to see the Dukun. And as soon as she says those words, Andreas completely understands where all her secrecy is coming from. In Indonesia, a Dukun is basically the same thing as a shaman or faith healer. They're like a sorcerer who can make potions to give you luck or keep your partner faithful or make you more attractive. Only in Indonesia, witchcraft can be extremely controversial because the country is predominantly Muslim and religious groups condemn anyone who practices magic. The government has even tried to make it illegal on several occasions. Those restrictions never pass, but many people are still extremely suspicious of dukuns. Sometimes mobs will get together and murder people who they just suspect of being dukuns. So it's no wonder that Dewi didn't want to announce in the middle of the street that she's on her way to see a dukun. Everyone in Amman Damai knows that the local dukun is this guy named Ahmad Siraji. And despite all the taboos, he's actually pretty well-respected because he uses his magic for good. According to rumors, he can control the clouds and he's apparently protecting the village from droughts and floods. But it's still super looked down on to go visit him out in the open. When Andreas gets to Ahmad's house, Dewi begs him to keep this a secret. She literally won't get out of his rickshaw until he promises that he'll never breathe a word of this trip to her parents or to anyone else. Once Andreas promises that his lips are sealed, Dewi gets out and tells him not to wait up. She probably doesn't want him waiting out in front of the house drawing attention. So he drops Dewi off and gets out of there. Afterward, Andreas pretty much puts the whole encounter out of his mind. He probably figures whatever's going on with Dewi, it's none of his business. That is, until three days later. On April 27th, a local farmer is out gathering plants to feed his livestock. He's trudging through the sugarcane field, pulling up weeds when he notices this massive pile of dirt, like someone just recently buried something there. The guy heads off to get help and he comes back with his neighbor, Sugito. Sugito lives near this field, but he knows he didn't dig this mound. Looking at the size of it, he immediately thinks there could be a body under there. He calls the police, but they don't seem too interested. Instead of sending an officer to go check it out, they literally tell Sugito, okay, go ahead and dig that mound yourself. And if you find a corpse or anything, just call us. And that's gotta be a discouraging brush off. But Sugito considers himself a responsible citizen. So he starts digging. Later that afternoon, some other people notice Sugito and they all jump in to help out. It takes several hours, well into the night, but eventually they find something under the mound. It's a woman's body. It's pretty decomposed and totally nude. Still, it doesn't take long for some of the volunteers to recognize the victim. It's Dewi. To make extra sure, they have Dewi's parents come out to view the body. Her mother takes one look at her legs and immediately collapses in grief. She says, there's no question, this is definitely her daughter's corpse. But the question no one can answer is, how did Dewi die? And who buried her in this field? 
As far as anyone knows, she doesn't have any enemies who'd want her dead. And the last anyone heard from her, she just stepped out of the house to run some errands a few days ago. By this point, though, pretty much everyone has heard about the mystery, including Andreas, the rickshaw driver. The moment he hears the body is Dewey's, he realizes he must be the last person who saw her alive. Or the second to last person. He immediately breaks his promise and tells everyone that he took Dewey to the Dukun's house. Which means Ahmad Siraji might know something about this murder. This actually surprises a lot of the other villagers. Like, apart from the fact that he practices magic, Ahmad has a great reputation as a generally good, upstanding guy. He's a cattle herder and a doting husband. People treat him like something of a local elder or leader. It's hard for anyone to believe that Ahmad would kill anyone, especially because he fully cooperates when the accusations start flying. When the police show up at Ahmad's front door with questions, he immediately agrees to go back to the station for questioning. They start interrogating him, and Ahmad insists that he knows nothing about Dewi or her disappearance. But the more police dig, they realize he's not being fully honest. Ahmad is a killer, and Dewi isn't his only victim. Coming up, we'll look at Ahmad's homicidal past. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now back to the story. Before I tell you about Ahmad's life, I want to make a quick note. Ahmad Siraji was not his birth name. In fact, he used a lot of pseudonyms, but for clarity, I'm just going to refer to him as Ahmad. Ahmad was always an outsider. It's hard to find much information about his early years, but it's clear he was troubled. Throughout his childhood, he's constantly getting in trouble for stealing and shoplifting. And once he's a teenager, he graduates to violent crime, which, again, I'm not 100% sure what he does, but it's bad enough to get him sent to prison when he's only 19 years old. Ahmad serves 10 years, and as soon as he gets out, he promptly breaks the law and gets convicted again. It seems like he's never going to make a stable life for himself. But when Ahmad is free again in the 1980s, something changes. It seems like his two stints in prison have really scared him straight. And now that he's in his 30s, he decides it's time to settle down. He sets up a cattle ranch in his hometown of Amman Demai and pretty much stays out of major trouble. But he does toe the line occasionally. Ahmad marries three wives, which raises a few eyebrows, not because of polygamy, which isn't uncommon in Indonesia and some other predominantly Muslim countries, but because they're all sisters, and Islam forbids men from marrying women who are siblings. And that's not the only way Ahmad's pushing boundaries. Around this time, he also starts advertising his services as a dukun. Ahmad's father was also a dukun, so it's possible he's not even bothered by the social taboo. It's kind of a family business. And sorcery is controversial, but it's not illegal, so at least he's not breaking the law anymore. 
Ahmad's friends and neighbors are apparently willing to overlook his new career choice, especially once these reports start circulating that Ahmad can magically cure diseases or save people's businesses or even control the weather. Like, sure, magic is perceived as a little sketchy, but he's using it for good. For the most part, people like him and trust him, and it seems like Ahmad really has reformed. Right up until his neighbor Sugito uncovers Dewi's corpse. Based on Andreas's testimony, the investigators know that Ahmad must have something to do with Dewi's disappearance. So before they even question Ahmad, a few officers scour his house looking for evidence. They gather all these dresses and purses and other items from the house and show them to Dewi's parents. They don't recognize everything, but a few objects definitely belong to their daughter. A purse, two dresses, and a bracelet. Now, Ahmad insists that he doesn't know how Dewey's possessions ended up at his house. He implies that a lot of the things police seized actually belonged to his wives. And I guess it's possible in a small town like this that Ahmad's wives would have shopped at the same stores as Dewey and ended up with similar items. But the police aren't buying it. And they don't think it all belongs to Dewey either. In fact, they're starting to suspect Ahmad may have had other victims. In any case, there's no good reason for Ahmad to have all these women's possessions. And if he won't fess up to how he got them, they'll keep searching his property until they find the evidence they need. Since Dewey was buried in a field not too far from Ahmad's house, the investigators figure they might find other graves in the area. So they start digging. And soon enough, they find a couple more corpses on Ahmad's property. Which implies Ahmad isn't just a murderer, he's a serial killer. These bodies have been in the ground for a long time. And since they're naked, they're more decomposed than they would have been otherwise. Police are really struggling to identify some or all of the remains. Especially because at this time, DNA testing isn't as advanced. Literally, all the police can do is look through their missing persons files and make their best guesses to match up the corpses with the reports. They call some families to say that they think their loved ones may have been found dead, but it's hard to say anything with certainty. Obviously, it's pretty damning that all these corpses are so near Ahmad's property, but they can't even say for sure if he did it. Even after what must have been several hours of interrogation, Ahmad still says he has nothing to do with Dewey's murder or anyone else's. But then, something changes. I'm not sure why exactly, but Ahmad starts talking, and he tells them everything. Ahmad says that one night in 1986, he had this dream. According to some sources, he thinks it's actually a lost memory he recovered while he was sleeping. Whatever it was, Ahmad says he could sense his father's presence in the room. It was so palpable, he almost felt like his dad was physically there, like some kind of ghost or spirit. His father tells him that he can increase his power and become invincible with a certain magical potion. If he drinks it, he'll become one of the greatest dacoons on earth. All he needs for this potion is the saliva of 70 dead women, which 
is a tall order. You'd have to be pretty unreasonable to take this seriously. But when Ahmad wakes up, he can't let go of the idea. He'd love to be the greatest Dukun on Earth. His only problem is where he's going to get this saliva. Apparently, Ahmad doesn't need to save it or store it or anything. I guess it's like okay to just lick it out of each dead woman's mouth one by one. But as far as how to get the corpses, he jumps right to the most violent, messed up strategy he can think of. Because, I mean, in theory, he could try to like sneak into a morgue or a hospital or something. But instead, Ahmad's just cutting straight to the chase. He is going to kill 70 people. Luckily for Ahmad, he's already got a great setup where vulnerable women visit his house in secret. The illicit nature of his work means most of his customers don't want anyone to know that they're seeing him. So even when women in Ahmad Demai start going missing, nobody makes the connection with Ahmad. Instead, people figure, well, maybe they ran away with a lover or skipped town to find a job in the city or something. I mean, Ahmad's own victims are literally doing all the heavy lifting of covering up his crimes. And when business is slow, Ahmad reportedly hires sex workers and kills them. If anything, they're even less likely to tell anyone where they're going before they vanish. Which means for 11 years, nobody's investigating these disappearances. This must have him feeling pretty confident and super bold. I mean, just look at how easy Dewey's murder was. As soon as Andreas drops her off, Dewey slips into Ahmad's house and lays out her problem. Two weeks ago, she separated from her husband, but now she wants him back. Maybe she wants a love potion or some kind of spell to make her look more beautiful. It really doesn't matter what she asks for because Ahmad's answer is always the same. He tells Dewey to walk out of his house past the local graveyard and into the sugarcane field with him. Once they get to just the right spot, Ahmad tells Dewey to start digging. It's possible she realizes this is weird, but only Dukuns know how magic is supposed to work, so Dewey probably just holds her tongue and does as he says. But I've got to imagine Dewey must get nervous when he tells her to climb into the hole. As far as I can tell, Amon never explains whether she refuses or tries to run away. Either way, she doesn't escape. None of Ahmad's victims ever do. Instead, Dewi sits in the hole while Ahmad refills it, burying her up to her waist, and then he ties her hands together. And when Dewi is completely bound and unable to fight back, he strangles her with an electrical cord. This is not a quick or painless death. Dewey's struggling as hard as she can, which actually draws things out. It takes somewhere between 10 to 15 minutes before she finally suffocates to death. Once she goes still and cold, Ahmad pries Dewey's mouth open and presses his lips to hers. But Ahmad insists there's nothing sexual about it. He only wants the saliva out of her mouth. Once he gets that, he digs Dewey back up strips her naked and buries her again, this time with her head pointed toward his house. Supposedly, this burial position is supposed to make the spell even more powerful. Ahmad leaves all of his victims this way. 
It might seem weird that they all have to be naked, but Ahmad says it's just because he thinks the body will decompose faster without clothing. I guess he's nervous that if someone ever identifies Dewi's corpse, they might be able to trace her back to him. And he's right to be worried. Because when Dewi's body is found, it's the first time in 11 years that police give Ahmad a second look. Ahmad's testimony is the sort of thing that just sends chills up your spine. He doesn't seem remorseful at all. He just calmly explains that he's had a vision, and now he has to collect all this saliva from dead women like it is the most natural thing in the world. He says he's only confessing now because it must be fate that he got caught, and Dukuns have to pay attention when fate intervenes. According to Ahmad, he's already murdered nine victims, which just sends investigators reeling. Like, how did so many people go missing without anyone digging deeper? But then they take another look at those clothes and accessories. And I'm not sure exactly how they determine this, but there's no way that all this stuff came from just nine people. There have to be even more victims. So the police get Ahmad back into interrogation, and he confesses. Okay, yeah, his kill count is probably closer to the mid-teens. But the cops still know that this number is low. They're thinking he's murdered something like 25 people. And to back up that theory, they dig up some more evidence. Literally, day after day, they pull even more human remains out of the ground. Ahmad's property is littered with bones. Unfortunately, these skeletons are even harder to identify. But one thing's clear. Ahmad's still lowballing the number of victims. So the police subject him to what they call intensive interrogation, which basically means they torture a confession out of him. And finally, Ahmad says that the police don't even know the half of it. He's killed more than 25 women. A lot more. He's buried 42 corpses in his field. Coming up, Ahmad's case goes to trial, and it makes him a celebrity. Now back to the story. In the days after Ahmad's arrest, the police find some bodies and a bunch of bones on his property. The total number of victims is still up in the air, but they know there's a lot more graves to exhume. Ahmad's already confessed to 42 murders. The investigators uncover grave after grave. At one point, they start to worry that there's no way they'll have enough time, manpower, and resources to recover every person's remains. So they bring in a backhoe just to excavate the whole field. Naturally, this investigation triggers massive news coverage. Journalists from all over the world descend on Ahmad Demai to report on Ahmad, who they dub the Black Magic Killer. They stake out the sugarcane fields 24 hours a day, pulling all-nighters so they don't miss a single discovery the police dig up. There are so many reporters and onlookers camped out in the fields, Amand Demai turns into this sort of weird tourist destination. Locals even start selling souvenirs. I mean, it almost seems more like a morbid theme park than an active crime scene. All the while, the police just keep digging and uncovering body after body. 42 of them, in fact which matches Ahmad's confession exactly. After that, the police stop looking for more. 
The detective's reasoning is Ahmad only admitted to 42 murders. And now that they've got evidence to confirm this confession, there's no real point in continuing to look. It's a lot of work after all. But this decision creates a massive controversy. Some people wonder, what if Ahmad rounded down? What if he killed even more people? I mean, Ahmad had lied about his victim count before. Plus, there are open missing persons reports on at least 80 local women. It's pretty incredible to think about, but maybe Ahmad actually did hit his goal of murdering 70 people and even kept killing after that. This is frustrating for everyone with a missing family member. They might never get any closure just because the police are, what, I don't know, tired of digging? But the good news is Ahmad's definitely going down for his crimes. I mean, he's already been found guilty in the court of public opinion. It's basically impossible for his lawyers to find an impartial jury for his trial. During the hearing, the local people around Ahmad Demai get so outraged, they actually storm Ahmad's empty house and destroy everything he owns. They literally tear down his walls and rip down the roof. By the time they're done, all that's left is the concrete foundation and a few stray wood planks. Given all this, it's no wonder that in 1998, Ahmad is found guilty. He gets the harshest sentence possible, death. But about 10 years go by between his conviction and his execution. And during his time on death row, Ahmad is still fixated on spiritualism. Now he's claiming that he's a devout Muslim, like he's seen the air of his ways and he's done with black magic and murder. A lot of the other inmates say he's genuinely reformed. Some actually seek Ahmad out for religious guidance, the same way all those women went to him for magical remedies. It's hard to say from the outside whether Ahmad's spiritual awakening is genuine or if he's just angling to get his sentence overturned. But if it's the latter, it doesn't work. Because on July 10, 2008, Ahmad is killed by a firing squad. It takes him three minutes to die after the bullets hit his chest. And even after that, police still aren't satisfied the job is done. They actually order an autopsy just to make sure he's dead. Just in case his invincibility spell actually worked, I guess. And I'm sure that might sound ridiculous. After all of this, you might be thinking, well... I'd never get duped by a serial killer who calls himself a sorcerer. But every culture has con artists who know how to plug into people's spiritual beliefs. We've seen it in Russia with Rasputin, and in the U.S. with David Koresh and Jim Jones. These spiritual predators know how to tap into our most treasured values. And when they're left unchecked, they can destroy their victims. Thanks for listening. For more information on Ahmad Siraji, I found the Crime Investigation Asia episode, The Sorcerer from Hell, especially helpful to my research. Next week, I'll be back with another stop on our true crime world tour. And if you want to hear more, you can find all episodes of International Infamy for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from ParCast starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. 
This episode of International Infamy was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Kay Gallagher and Ali Wicker, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals. 